Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for March 20th, 2022. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, excited to have everybody on the show. If anybody's listening live, we are about three hours early. No, we haven't, uh, you know, we're not out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean in some of the time zones. It just kind of fit into a lot of folks' schedules to go a little early this week, and we're excited because that allows our guest, uh, Sonia Van Meter, to come join us for at least the second time on the Kudzu Vine to discuss Texas politics. And we know they went first with their primary schedule, so we're going to discuss with Sonia what happened in those primaries. Uh, there were some runoffs, what that means for the general election, and we'll get deep into that in about 20 minutes. But until then, we've got some other topics to discuss. And right off, um, I wanted to, to note two political passings in the recent days. Uh, the first one happened a little over a week ago, um, but I guess the, the funeral services and whatnot happened this past week. And that was former Atlanta mayor Sam Bassell uh, passed away. He was mayor, I want to say, in the late 60s to early 70s, um, that kind of period right then. Uh, but he was actually the ex-mayor of Atlanta and stayed involved in Atlanta politics um, and Atlanta civic life for really decades after. Um, and then um, something I was actually reading, uh, one of our guests a few months ago, Clayton Truder's book, Loserville, and Sam Massell was the mayor who um, put together the Omni Coliseum deal, which would have been the roughly 16,000-square-seat uh, arena that hosted so many uh, events, but then also was the catalyst to bringing the Atlanta Hawks um, to Atlanta from St. Louis and the Atlanta Flames into existence, and they played for roughly a decade, and then in Atlanta and hockey just don't mix um, for whatever reason. But still, um, that was one of the more interesting things that I learned about Sam Mazzell's legacy by reading Clayton's book. Um, Tim, uh, what were some of your thoughts on Sam Mazzell and his legacy? Well, um, first of all, he's the first and only Jewish mayor of Atlanta. Let's don't forget that. I mean, uh, in 1969, Atlanta elects a Jewish mayor in the deep south in the middle of the civil rights movement i mean i thought you know that was that was really a big thing a, a, a decade before that would have been unthinkable uh anywhere in the south he's the last non-black mayor of atlanta by the way you mentioned he served one term um he he also brought marta he 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 uh people have credited him with being the person that made marta happened. MARTA would not have happened at least as it did without the efforts of Sam Marcel. Uh I did not know this, but during his 
term, he was he appointed the first female to the city council. There was an opening in those days. The mayor could just appoint a replacement. They might still can. I don't know. But he actually appointed the first female in the history of the Atlanta city council. And he was the first mayor also to a, a, a black person to lead one of the major city departments. So he was a forward-thinking person. Uh, he... Um, he got a lot of good done in a short amount of time, which was only one term. And you mentioned that he, that he uh, really, especially with the the Buckhead area, stayed involved heavily in Atlanta politics for pretty much the rest of his life. And he, you know, achieved iconic status in his lifetime. Uh, Catherine, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, I don't, I didn't know very much about him. Um, and learned a lot of the same things that you've said. And, you know, I think we should, you know, I think I I really appreciate um, his leadership. And like you said, he stayed involved in, um, in some level of civic life for the rest of his life. And, uh, you know, I think it's a real um, sign of a, you know, dedicated, uh, a dedicated public servant so um thank you to him and uh you know condolences to his family yes um tim kind of piggybacking on that story i think i've said it before on the cousin vine but i had heard um on the city beautiful um i guess youtube show they talked about how atlanta and seattle had referendums to expand um railway access on the same day and Seattle voted uh-huh. theirs down, and Atlanta uh-huh. voted theirs in. And so all the money well, that the federal government had earmarked for Seattle and Atlanta both went to Atlanta because Seattle didn't pass their um, their referendum, and Atlanta did, and it kind of doubled uh, no. the scope of the MARTA rail well, project. Now, that may have been a little bit different time yeah, than you know, the buses. It was the rail, but I still find that an interesting uh, piece of Atlanta's legacy. Um, yeah, you well, know, Dave, talk, there was another passing. This one happened Friday night, um, or, or reported Friday. It may have happened on Friday, but it was Friday night when it kind of got out there. Uh, longtime congressman from Alaska. Uh, that means he represents the whole state, because so you can imagine um, how much politicking that is. A lot of that probably happened by plane, um, given the immense uh, area of Alaska. Uh, first elected in 1974. Don Young uh, passed away, and I guess uh, very unexpectedly, um, you know. So Alaska will be have a you know a new um, political you know phase of their time since pretty much anybody under fifty uh, has only had Don Young as their representative in Alaska in their lifetime. Um, Catherine, your thoughts on Don Young and his passing? You know, I, I mean, I don't really recall hearing much about him ever, which is funny after all these years. But you know, um, long, time, long, long uh, public servant, long-serving public servant. I, I, I mean, I don't know what to say. Honestly, I mean, I don't have much to say about him because I don't know much about him. So, okay, uh, Tim, your thoughts on Don Young? 
Well, you know, he was uh, president. He was the dean of, of, of you know, the, the House. He was the longest-serving member. He served with, uh, I believe, 10 presidents going back to Nixon. I believe he got elected in a special election in 1973, as I recall. He, he actually, now, now this is a trivia, trivia, but he was the only remaining congressman still in Congress who actually appeared on C-SPAN on the day that it came on the air in 1979. Wow. He That's was actually cool. <laughs> speaking in a hearing, and they covered that hearing. And uh, one thing that he was known for and will be forever known for, and he once said that this was his proudest achievement of all the things he did in Congress, um, was uh, he got the legislation passed to get the Trans-Alaska Pipeline going and the oil flowing from the North Slope to uh, um, the Bering Sea. And uh, Alaska, as a result, experienced an oil boom. A lot of government money, as a result, came into Alaska. And uh, the folks up there really, really, uh, well, I I think that's the main thing that kept him in office all these years. He was... uh, um, somebody that that the majority of, of the residents of that state like because he could, you know, bring the goods home and uh, that good just kept on giving to the state. Um, although lately, you know, for environmental concerns, there's other stories involved with that. But uh, that is really the passing of an icon, and he was very highly thought of by members of both parties. Uh, He quite often crossed the aisle to do a little work with the other side, and uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi asked for the flags to be lowered uh, at the Capitol, and uh, I believe that the uh, president also asked for uh, all flags in the federal government to be lowered. So he was uh, very, very highly thought of. Yeah, I don't think he was an ideologue at all. I think he was somebody that wanted no. to bring home constituent services, government money to Alaska. And, some, and you know, that could have been uh, good for liberalism at times and good for conservatism at times, but it was all focused on, you know, bringing back government projects and funds from Alaska, um, yeah. whichever way that meant. And so at least he yeah. had that um, – focused principle, and that probably did serve him well at the ballot box to win, I guess, around 25 uh, statewide elections. He was um, he was in his 25th term in Congress. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and the reason I said 74 is because I know in 72, I did see that he ran and he lost to um, Mark Begich's father, and his first name escapes me. But um, he did lose that election, but then he may have won the special, like you said. Um, apparently, he also – I think uh, Miles Coleman uh, tweeted out that he appeared in all but one of the uh, congressional almanacs since they started publishing in 72. He missed just the first one, and he was in every single one of those since. Um, and I think a lot of that's obviously when they started publishing those Mm -hmm. um well now let's uh change to something a little different a little more political 
um, you know, clear break from honoring the two legacies of those two um, politicians and, and go to something else. And in the state of Georgia, there is going to be a primary on the Republican side for U.S. Senate. Um, given the polls, there's one clear front runner, Herschel Walker, and then there's other candidates running, and the most named commodity of those is statewide elected official, Agriculture Commissioner Gary Black, uh, is running, and he has not come really anywhere close in the polls to, um, I wouldn't even say in striking distance of Herschel Walker and the polling that I've seen thus far. Well, I guess he could tell it because this past week he put out a website with a two-minute video, a roughly two-minute video, that was one of the most brutal attacks I've ever seen. And when I say brutal, I don't mean untruthful. I just mean brutal because everything in it may be absolutely true. I haven't done the research. I haven't read the briefing book, so I don't know. But I have heard many of the same rumors in other contexts. But when you put it all together in that video, it is just, just something else, to say the least. Um, Catherine, uh, what were your thoughts when you watched that uh, video that Gary Black's campaign put out? Well, it was pretty shocking. I mean, I think we've all heard the rumors about um, or the reports of Herschel Walker's uh, domestic violence, um, the accusations of the domestic violence, the allegations. But when you when you line them all up, you know, one after the other, it's pretty shocking <laughs> to hear about it. Um, I just I, I find it ironic that. You know, they, at the end or towards the end, they say, you know, how many other women have these kind of reports? And while we never heard that um, <laughs> former President Trump was uh, abused women in a violent way, we do know that he was uh, accused of harassment. And I just find it ironic that... Um, we would go after Herschel Walker, but forgive um, and pretty much ignore the reports of uh, former President Trump's uh, behavior. But you know that he's he's running for Senate and he wants to rile things up, so that's what he did. But it was shocking that list of the list of allegations is pretty shocking. Yes, the, the volume. Uh, Tim, you saw the video as well. What was your severe takeaways? You know, I remember early in that video at one point a blank screen came up, and all of a sudden the giant words, every word of this is true, came up. Just and held for a second that screen before it went on with the video. They wanted to plant that image right there they wanted to plant that statement in the head of everyone watching the video before the video got started i thought it was one of the most brutal attack videos i've ever seen like you did now how effective was it uh you know so far at least this early now, but so far there's no evidence that this is having any effect. 
Walker's way ahead, and he's continually polling above 50%. You know, but it's in the low 50s. Is this enough to knock him below 50 and get him into runoff territory? I think that is the point of this. I don't believe Black actually believes he can overtake Walker in the polls. The the, the point here is to knock him below 50%. But maybe in the era of Trump, where up is down, down is up, the the old things don't seem to apply sometimes. Maybe this sort of thing doesn't have the staying power that it once did, at least in the Republican primary. Now, it might help the Democrats a little bit, though. Uh, I, I don't know if anything's going to stop Walker at this point. If this doesn't stop his momentum, I, I'm not sure what could because, man, this was one savage attack video. It went right for the throat. I got to I gotta hand it to Black on this. He's going all in. He meant to go all in with this, and he meant to do exactly what he meant to do. And now we're going to see how effective uh, attack politics still is. Yeah, Catherine, the video has all of the allegations uh, that Herschel Walker has with you know, violence towards women and things like that. And then the last, I want to say, 20 seconds of the video is an exchange between Jeff Hollinger and Chuck Todd. And in that exchange, they say, they talk about, you know, they kind of allude to some of these allegations that have been out there for quite a time. And they say, wouldn't Raphael Warnock rather face um, uh, Herschel Walker than Gary Black? And, and, Chuck Todd agrees. He says, yes, he'd much rather face um, Herschel Walker than Gary Black because of all this. Is that not possibly the most damning attack for Republican voters in that um, video? Oh, that's an interesting point. Um, You know, we've talked about these kind of things before. You know, maybe that is a – he is a better – um, opponent for Raphael Warnock, but but then you have to think about well, what if Raphael Warnock doesn't prevail? God forbid. Then we end up with Herschel Walker as a senator, sort of like you know, it's a tough cho- It's a tough situation, but I I mean I agree. I think that if I mean, I can't wait for a debate between Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock. But mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I'll say this. I think Raphael Warnock has the advantage on Walker or Black because Gary Black is not a, a very effective public speaker either. He's by far the most yeah, polished speaker right. of the three. Um, Kim, what was your mm-hmm. thoughts on that line by Chuck Todd? Um, and Jeff Hollinger. Well, you, you know, it, it, it could be, but but I know what I think about things like that. I've made it abundantly clear before. If the Republicans are going to nominate someone, and they are, let's have their best candidate in case they win. I would right. much rather see a Senator Gary Black any day of the week than a Senator Herschel Walker. It would be better for Georgia. It would be better for the country. We went through this with Trump. People saying, oh, yeah, let Trump get the Republican nomination back in 2016. I know you all heard it. We all did. 
let him get the nomination. We'll kill him. Well, you know what? We didn't, and look what happened. We, You know, the, these people that are not fit uh, are, are not qualified. Uh, let, let's get them beat as quickly as we can. Uh, that being said, I, I, I just don't think anything's going to stop Walker from winning this nomination. I'll go ahead yes, and say I, that I now. What do you think, David? That. If you want the best candidate, the Republicans, Latham Staten is probably the most qualified of their primary field. Um, he's better than Black and Walker, but he's probably going to get mm-hmm. you know next to zero support. Um, and, mm-hmm. and you know he still wouldn't be nearly as good as Raphael Warnock, but nevertheless. He would be a better, much better candidate uh, than their two front runners. Um, well, now I want to switch gears from Georgia and go out to Texas and welcome in to the kudzu vine again, Mrs. Sonia Van Meter. Welcome, Sonia. Hey, how y'all doing today? Doing good. Um, we'll talk a little Texas politics. We know y'all had y'all's primary early, and we'll talk about some of the results. But right off, why does Texas have their primary in March? when the general then is all the way in November. That seems like a long time, given it's the longest, I guess, in the country. Uh, well, you know, Texas, we like to make life difficult for everybody involved whenever possible. So <laughs> that's just sort of our standard operating procedure. Um, you know, the truth of the matter is, you know, we, believe it or not, there are earlier primaries. Not many, but a few. Um, but, uh, but that, you know, that's a, that is a fine question. I think it might have to do with the fact that we just love spending money, and that means that, you know, the earlier race to start, the earlier we got to start spending on, on TV and mail and digital advertisements. Um, and it, it, creates a, it, it creates a bigger industry for people like me who make their living trying to get people into office. So that is just speculation. I'm not sure you want to take my word for it, but uh, that, that would be my guess. Yes, and I will say that Chicago municipal politics, I believe they have primaries in like February or January. I guess they want no one going door-to-door in those cold winters, so they do have earlier primaries, (laughs) but that is municipal. Um, So let me change gears. I mean, it makes sense to talk about the top-level races and everything else, but I'm going to save that for Catherine and Tim. I want to ask about the attorney general's race. Uh, George ah, P. Yeah. Bush was, has been your land commissioner for a while. Mm-hmm. He decided he's going to you know, step up the ladder and run for a bigger office. He went for attorney general thinking that Kim Paxton, with all of his ethical dilemmas going on, that that would just be a great opportunity to move up. And not only did he not finish first, he didn't even seem to finish that close. What Just kind of break down that whole attorney general's race. Well, you know, another uh, consultant made this great point, uh, a great illustration of how things work uh, generally in the political sphere. No one's going to drink regular, I'm sorry, no one's going to drink Diet Coke if they prefer regular Coke, right? Like, Diet Coke is what you drink because you kind of have to, you know, you you prefer regular Coke. That is, uh, so uh, Paxton, Tim Paxton is our Coca-Cola for the Republican Party. He is the legit thing. Uh, and, and bless his heart, George P., you know, he comes from a, a political dynasty family. He's got savvy. He's got connections. He's gotten money. But he is, he is Diet Coke, um, you know, because Republican primaries out here are about, are about Trumpism. And, you know, Trump very loudly bragged about how every one of the candidates that he endorsed either won flat out or, um, or you know, made it to the runoff. And, you know, despite the fact that, that 
poor George P. was willing to throw his entire family under the bus by bragging about how Trump, uh, you know, had shaken his hand and, and supported him as a candidate. It didn't matter because Paxton is still the Trump nominee. And, uh, and so at the end of the day, that's, you know, that is the, the person dictating the Republican agenda these days. So, you know, I, I respect and admire what, what George is trying to do here, but this is, this is never going to be his right to win. Yes, well, I'll tell you what, uh, Diet Coke is excellent when you have uh, acid on a battery. <laughs> just pour it off, but never put that in your body. Um, <laughs> the taste, I'd give that away. Um, well, let me ask you about the race that George uh, P. Bush um, vacated, that land commissioner's race. I wanted to switch over to the Democratic side, and one of the most intriguing candidates um, that, that y'all have running in Texas is Jay Clayburg. Apparently, he is the heir to the King Ranch, um, you know, empire, if you will, with their, you know, Ford truck brand and their own Yellowstone, and obviously they probably make tons of money off of cattle and horse raising and everything else that they're actually known for doing. Um, and this is this red state, you know, Republican type voter leaning um, brand, King Ranch. But yet they have this um, environmentally progressive candidate that's heir to it, Jay Clayburg. Is there a chance that he could take, you know, the good Republican vibes, if you will, off of the King Ranch and put them with his actual policies as a Democratic candidate and, and run a winning campaign in Texas? Uh, you know, I would love to believe that, um, but, you know, according to, to history and the way things are tracking, according to, to all the polling I'm seeing, this is going to be a rough, rough year for Democrats, top to bottom of the ballot in this state. Um, and the problem is quite simply that the poor man is going to have a D next to his name when people see him, you know, in their, on their ballots. Um, especially, you know, given that he's still in a runoff and, and it, most people don't really understand what the what the land commissioner really does. Um, you know, people vote according to party, and um, you know, it, it, don't get me wrong. The, you know, the Cleaver's name is is a is is well known, um, certainly better known than some of the other people running in some of these down ballot races. But um, you know, that that's not going to change the fact that people are are kind of set in their ways, and especially now. And, you know, that's not a race that's going to attract a lot of attention. And so, you know, people are going to go with their guts. They're going to go with what's familiar. Um, and I just, yeah, I, just, I don't see being able to capitalize completely on, on those advantages. Yes, well, that's, that's unfortunate. I, I thought that was an intriguing biography for a Democratic candidate in a state like Texas. And, you know, obviously we know the political reality of, March 20th, 2022, we only have to hope that it will be better in November. Um, but I'm going to pass it over to um, Tim, who's got more questions about Texas. Catherine will have many more. And then if they leave anything else, I might come in for a second round. Tim? Uh, good evening, uh, Sonia. Thank you for being with us tonight. Um, in District 28, now, that's an interesting dynamic playing there. Henry Cuellar has been forced into a runoff against uh, Jessica Cisneros. Now, mm -hmm. the really interesting thing about that is she has got the backing of progressives. 
uh, we think of progressives as, you know, AOC and Bernie Sanders up in the Northeast and a pocket of them uh, out on the coast in California, but Texas? So first of all, are progressives making inroads in democratic politics in Texas? And the second part of this question is that a lot of people are saying if Cisneros wins the nomination, the seat stays Democratic. If she wins it, Republicans win the seat. So um, what do you think about those two things? You know what? Um, let me go ahead and jump into the second part of that. I think if uh, Henry Cuellar does not survive this runoff, that seat goes uh-huh. red in November, without, without a doubt. Uh-huh. Um, and this is something that goes back to your first point, actually. You know, the fact is progressive organizations and really progressive candidates and progressive leaders across the country, you know, they want to invest in Texas. Because Texans here on the ground keep saying, you know, if y'all don't give us some support, you know, you know this is a big state, it's, a, it's an expensive state to campaign in. You know, there's only so much we can do because we only have so many Democrats here. So I appreciate, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as a Democratic operative, I appreciate, you know, the willingness of outside folks like, like Bernie Sanders, like AOC, like, uh, you know, Emily's list getting involved in, in races here in Texas. But I think the problem is we assume that, uh, you know, and particularly in a district like this, you know, it's, there's, a, there's a very there's a significant um, Hispanic population there. Democrats tend to sort of get stuck in this mindset that uh, we're, just, we're not reaching out to Latinos enough. We're not, we're not being loud enough you know, in their direction. They don't know about all the great policies that we have that will benefit them and improve their lives. I think a lot of people are far more conservative than we realize. And, uh, and that's why, you know, Henry Cuellar, you know, as a pro-gun, anti-abortion Democrat, has, has worn far better than, uh, than a lot of other Democrats that have tried to hold, hold on to offices here in, in, uh, in this state. So, um, you know, it, it, it's just a question of us needing to kind of get a little bit more nuanced in our research and figuring out, you know, who, who are we needing to talk to and how are we needing to message to them, um, as well as, and, and this, is a, this is also a very significant problem in, in Latino districts in Texas, disinformation campaigns are seriously, seriously targeted at, uh, at Latino populations. Um, so, mm. you, know, you know, in addition to the fact that they're being told that every Democrat they know is a raving socialist who wants to tax them back to the Stone Age, um, you know, they're also getting a lot of straight-up bad information um, that, you know, and, and that causes fear and it causes panic and it will absolutely cause you to, to run in the other direction. So, you know, Democrats got a lot, a lot of work to do. Um, and particularly in, in, in 28 this cycle. Mm-hmm. Now, now you, you, you said earlier that, that it's going to be a really rough year for Texas Democrats, and indeed, you know, if present trends hold, you know, I, mo- most people can see around the country it may be a rough year for Democrats across the board, but Texans last saw Democrats win a statewide race while Ann Richards was governor. Now, that's that's a long time ago. Is Texas simply fool's goal for Democrats right now? Right this second, yes. But here's the good news for, for Texas Democrats. We keep closing the gap numerically. Mm-hmm. We are, we get closer and closer uh, 
to, to, to if we itch, it's, it's in inches every cycle, but we are closing the gap and we continue to do it. We even did it in 2020 when Donald Trump was on the ballot and turnout was, you know, astronomical relative to, to previous years. Um, you know, we, we thought that we were going to win because we knew that we were going to turn out in numbers. We just didn't, we also didn't anticipate that, uh, that, you know, their numbers would turn out so big as well. But, you know, like in terms of, you know, in terms of the math, we are inching closer and closer. It won't be this year. I doubt it'll be, you know, in two more years. But, uh, yeah, there, there is cause to hope. It's not quite this second. Yeah. Then there's the, dare I say, the word elephant in the room, which is the new voting law, formerly known as Senate Bill 1. Uh, mail ballot rejections are showing signs of a race gap in Texas. Uh, Harris County in particular, uh, areas there with large black populations are so far 44% more likely to have ballots rejected than are heavily white areas in the same county. Is, is this sort of thing just unique to like Harris County or, 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 or is this going on across the state and is this new voting law creating more problems than it's solving? Oh, I'll tell you right now, it's not solving a single problem. Um, mm-hmm. It's only made things worse. It's made things harder for everyone involved too. That's another part of the problem. So yes, to your, to your first point, um, it's, it's definitely being enforced more rigorously in areas where there are non-white voting populations. But here's the problem. It's not just, you know, uh, black voters and brown voters who are getting rejected. There are plenty of people who, you know, traditionally fall in a, in a Republican demographic that are having their mail ballots returned as well. Um, to say nothing of the fact that it's, this whole law is undermining uh, Republican faith in elections, like, from jump. Uh, you know, one of the problems that the Republican Party is seeing is, is, that, is that their base is saying, well, shoot, you know, if you're telling me these elections are rigged, then why do I even bother turning out? Why do I even bother submitting a ballot? Um, so it's, it's done nothing but gin up money for people who like the idea of, of keeping the Republicans we have in power now. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's working exactly the way that it's supposed to. It's, uh, it's depressing turnout everywhere. And um, and that's that is by design. That is a feature, not a bug. Yeah, I'm sorry to say we are about to experience some of the same things. I'm afraid in our in our May primary here with one of the most restrictive voting laws in the country enacted. And on that happy note, I'm going to send it over to <laughs> Catherine. Catherine. Hey, Sonia. Thanks for being on the show tonight. It's nice to have you here. It is um, my pleasure, always. I can't, I can't talk about Texas without talking about abortion. I just, I can't. So uh, now that they've managed to outlaw abortion in, in Texas, what are they talking about? Like, what is the next uh, hot topic that they're going to try to push to keep their voters engaged? Well, right now the hot topic of the day seems to be uh, trans individuals and their right to exist, their right to play sports, their right to um, uh, appropriate health care. Uh, the, the new 
hot button, uh, poorly polarizing issue of the day is definitely trans uh, lives. And, uh, you know, it's really funny. You know, i got to tell you, there's a fun, fun little thing that I noticed the other day. Um, the day that our fearless governor, Greg Abbott, put out his little missive about, um, you know, trans children needing to be plucked from, you know, their homes for child endangerment, um, the head of ERCOT, I don't know if y'all are familiar with ERCOT, they're the people that handle the, the, the power grid here in Texas, um, testified rather loudly that they were under very strict orders from Greg Abbott a year ago to keep prices, uh, energy prices, super, super, super high, um, yielding several astronomically high um, power bills for a lot of Texans during that nasty, nasty freeze where half the state was without power, several towns were without water, um, and several people died. Now, that, that missive from Abbott is legally not really worth much. It is, it is not enforceable. It is not, a, it is not a law. It was not voted upon. Um, but it came out the day that, you know, that, that little tidbit about uh, Abbott's uh, oversight of, of the power failure came to light. And so I don't know how much of it is really about wanting to go after trans individuals, trans children in particular, and how much of it is just about wanting to change the narrative because he knew he was going to take a pounding in the papers for a few days. Yeah, I, I did hear about that um, energy, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, scandal or however you want to <laughs> refer to it. And what mm-hmm. has been the reaction to that? Are people outraged or are they just, well, that's what politicians do? Or, you know, what's the what's the word on the street? What does the street committee yeah, say? Yeah, you know what the word the word on the street is nobody who isn't a political insider who follows this stuff, you know, religiously really gives, excuse me, cares. <laughs> um, they, uh, you know, this, this is not, it, it wasn't a hot enough story to catch a lot of traction, particularly since, you know, people right now are still worried about sending their, their children to school with or without masks. We're still trying to figure out, you know, how to, how to, you know, handle this the teacher shortage, we're still trying to, I mean, there, there are just so many other problems that a small piece of negligence or corruption like that is a day-long story, if that. Um, and again, you know, Abbott is a very, very savvy politician. He knew, he knew exactly what timing this was going to be. And so, you know, he picked that fight um, on that day because, you know, he needed something else to, to take the heat off of them. Um, I mean, and I knew that it would work, you know, because this is this is an issue. Of, you know, like the Republican base these days doesn't feel good unless they are putting somebody else, you know, under their thumb. And uh, and Abbott right. knows that. You know, Abbott is there's a reason he's uh, he's been in power in this in the state for so long. I uh, I, I uh, applaud everyone in in Texas for you know fighting back, even though it seems. Uh, like an impossible fight, and I am grateful for you know Lilith Fund and all the people who are helping people who can get pregnant to take care of themselves. So thank you. I know I saw oh, in your tweet that you had 
been tweeting about that, and I really, I, I really appreciate it. And you know, we're facing some similar kinds of uh, legislation here in Georgia, and uh, hopefully that I think I don't I think they were able to stop it before it crossed over. So I think we're good for this year anyway. But thanks a lot, and uh, I'm going to pass it to David because I know he's got a couple more questions for you. Yes, well, Sonia, uh, Tim t- touched on one congressional district, and we're not going to talk about all these congressional races since we know Texas has so many. But y'all went through reapportionment, and you, I believe, gained two congressional seats, which was as many as anybody, and I guess equal to, to Florida. Um, so what did that do to the congressional map of Texas for the next 10 years? Well, Republicans still had a clear advantage, of course. Um, and they finally, they finally gave Austin, uh, you know, an, an extra, uh, an extra slice of their of their much deserved uh, Democratic pie. Um, if you were following 35 and 37, those are the, the newly drawn districts. I think um, one of them is going to longtime congressional uh, representative Lloyd Doggett, who, um, you know, bless his heart, he had uh, he had kind of a rowdy primary this time. He ordinarily runs, you know. I don't want to say unopposed because there's always a few people that land on the ballot, but, you know, it's not people that generally put up much of a fight. And because of the newly drawn lines, um, there were a couple of people who thought, you know what, you are old and tired and I'm the hot new thing. And, you know, we had a few people in the race that thought they were going to flank him from the left. Um, and, you know, he had to campaign. He had to actually campaign in a primary for the, for the first time in a very, very long time. But, uh, but he was able to demonstrate that he is, he is still – a, you know, a bona fide, hardcore Democrat. He is fighting the right fights. He's, he's practical and pragmatic. He is not simply, you know, a mouthpiece, you know, who, who advocates for impossible things that we can't possibly get past. Um, you know, he's, he's been effective. And, um, and so he cruised pretty, pretty easily to, uh, to, his, to his general election, um, which will not be a problem for him. And then in Texas 35, um, we're going to have us a proper – liberal firebrand in Congress very, very soon. Uh, former city, co- city council member Greg Kassar uh, had Bernie Sanders endorsement. He had uh, AOC come down to San Antonio with him to campaign. Um, and he, you know, as any Austinite will tell you, he is a man that is not afraid to, to lob a, a cherry bomb and to see what happens. Um, you know, he's a, he is certainly a progressive fighter. Um, I don't know how effective he will be in Congress, but it is definitely his seat to take, and, and, I, and I know that Austin is, is pretty psyched about it for the most part. Yes. Well, um, well, let me ask you just then about an area as well, and I kind of prompted you for this. Um, so much has been made of that area that, that's along the Mexico border. Um, it's very um, – Latino heavy population, and a lot of Latino people that say that you know the uh, Texas border or the Mexico border crossed them, they didn't cross it. They, they long-term generation, um, and they have voted more Democratic for years. But in the past, last uh, um, really election cycle, they voted more Republican than they ever have, and the, the thought is they may trend that way unless actions taken. Um, how do you see that uh, area of the country and Texas. Well, just as you said, um, or, or as rather as we said before, um, you know, we 
we have long, the Democratic Party in Texas has long thought that the um, Hispanic population in Texas was a monolith and that if we just said, hey, look at these horrible, horrible things that, uh, you know, this other party is saying about you and your families and your communities and your, you know, you know, countries, ethnicities, that certainly they would eventually listen to us and be like, oh, wow, Democrats are the only way to vote. But uh, there are some very deeply conservative um, Hispanic populations all over Texas, particularly in the Rio Grande Valley. Um, and, you know, there are a million reasons why that could be the case. You know, it, it, it might just be that the Republicans are better at, at messaging about fear and panic. Um, you know, there is also a thought that, you know, for example, with uh, defund police, I think Democrats thought that was going to be a slam dunk issue for them because, you know, it's so popular among very, very left-leaning progressive centers. But, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is, you know, police provide a lot of jobs for a lot of people who, you know, don't necessarily go to college. And, you know, that's, that's a, that can be a significant chunk of that population down along the border. Um, so the idea that, you know, defunding the police may sound like a, like a progressive ideal until you talk about taking away, taking away a job of somebody in your family. Again, where we also got to talk about disinformation campaigns. I know that, um, that WhatsApp is, uh, is a very, very common way to get really, really bad information um, to large groups of people. And uh, Hispanic populations, particularly in South Texas, I know are very, very active on, on WhatsApp in, in groups. Um, so, you know, I mean, I, if the Democrats want to, I don't, think it's, I don't think it's a problem that we cannot overcome, but I do think we haven't quite figured out the ways in which we need to overcome them. Um, you know, we, we just seem to be moving a little bit more slowly, and, I, and the Democratic Party in general, especially in Texas, and I think that has to do with the fact that, you know, a lot of people promised, we promised that in 2022 we were going to see major advances. And we, I'm sorry, in 20, we were going to see major advances, you know, for, for blue candidates, that, that we were going to pick up more state ledge seats, state senate seats, none of that happened. You know, there was even a, a ripple among people thinking that, uh, you know, maybe, just maybe, um, you know, Biden can win Texas ahead of Trump, and obviously that didn't happen. Um, so there's a feeling of sort of, I don't know, what's the word? Every, I think Democrats are a little bit dispirited right now. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to be charismatic and inspirational um, when you feel like you just got your teeth kicked in two years ago and now we have to do it all over again. Um, but it's not a lost cause. We, we have the tools. We just need to figure out how to deploy them properly. Yes. Well, final question. You say that um, it's hard to be charismatic and inspirational. But if you wake up every day and your name's, your name's Better O'Rourke, it just comes with the territory. Um, tell us about the governor's campaign, given that you do at least have a top-flight candidate at the top of your te- uh, ticket. We do. We do. And the Democrats uh, need, to be, need to be very, very grateful to Beto uh, for his getting involved in this race. Um, first of all, you know, the great thing about him is that his last two runs, he has clearly learned a lot about campaigning. Uh, first in his Senate run against Ted Cruz and then when he ran for president. Um, you know, you could see changes he made to his campaign from the first campaign to the second, and now we're seeing even more changes from his second to the third. Um, so he's learning, and that has not taken away from his, his incredibly jovial nature. Like, he's still out there pounding the pavement, going to parts of Texas that haven't seen a, a Democratic candidate trudge through there in years. Um, 
He's got no problem campaigning for down-ballot races and trying to, you know, raise up Democrats as a whole rather than just running for himself. Um, you know, we're, we're lucky to have him on the ballot. That said, the question at the end of the day is, are there enough Democratic votes out there to, you know, to beat the Republican uh, incumbent? And as much as I would love to believe that Beto has superhuman powers, he is still a mere mortal. Um, and he's great at what he's doing, and uh, you know, I think I think as in years past, we'll see the gap close just a little bit more than it has been in in you know previous years. But um, but you know, he is the best that Texas has to offer right now for a top of the ticket candidate, and um, I will I will eat my hat if I if I am wrong about this. I just don't see him making it across the finish line. Yes. Well, thank you for all this great information. Before you leave us, tell our listeners if they want to follow you on social media, read any writings you have, anything you want to share with them, do that now. Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> let's see. Uh, I occasionally do a little bit of TV here and there in Texas, but uh, if you just want straight unfiltered Sonia Vanitter, Democratic political consultant from Texas, go to at Bourbonface on Twitter. Really should have thought that one through a little bit better. Yes. Well, well, we did link it. Uh, we talked about the show, so people can click on that. They can follow you and find out more Texas information before the next time you're on with us. Sounds like a plan. Looking forward to it. All right. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Thank, Thank you so you. much. All right. That was Sonia Van Meter, our Texas um, – correspondent, uh, a lot of good information about just one of the most uh, dynamic and largest and maybe one day fluid politically states uh, we've got. Um, but so good, good information on the Lone Star State. But now we're going to switch gears back to Georgia, in some ways back to planet Earth. Um, and this brings up my next um, uh, story is um, apparently several months ago, um, Longtime Star Trek fan Stacey Abrams was asked to do a um, cameo appearance on uh, one of their Star Trek shows that I guess streams on Paramount uh, Plus, and so that aired or that became available this past week, and and it was noted positively in the news, and then of course noted negatively by Republicans because they were so bothered, and they said that they did not agree that she could be president of earth um on a fictional show um catherine your thoughts on both the appearance and i don't know if you've been able to watch it or not uh but just what you've heard about it and then of course the republicans possible overreaction <laughs> well i haven't watched it but i did i did see a little clip you know and she looked great and um you know she is a devoted fan apparently she's been a fan for a long time and claims that, you know, it's some of the um, shows have been an inspiration to her. So that's cool. Um, but this, this like, outrage that she's the – she played a cameo role in a television show, a, a fictional television show that, you know, she shouldn't – she's not fit to be the – president of the world is just crazy president of earth i guess it's called but 
I, they just have to get outraged by something, I guess. So that was it for that two days or whatever. Crazy. Yes, uh, Tim, your take on both the appearance and um, the Republicans' response. Well, first of all, I want to let my Republican friends know that she got better reviews for this role than Donald Trump did for his cameo in, uh, you, you know, the days of our lives. I just I just wanted to let everybody know that. Um, Star Trek, my goodness. Maybe, maybe they're going to play this celebrity card where she's cozy without a touch, Hollywood types and la-di-da-di-da. I don't think that'll work. Uh, they they really don't want to do much attacking on the film industry since we get how many millions or, or billions of dollars a year now out of the film industry right here in Georgia. And secondly, it really does make them look like they're just – grasping at any straw to attack her for any or no reason when the average person could care less. I mean, nobody cared that Donald Trump was in Home Alone 2, you know, right? Uh, and, and you know, nobody will really care about this either. Uh, uh, as you said before we went on the air, David, uh, outside of a few hardcore political types, uh, th- this isn't going to, you know, change any minds or, or, or do anything. So uh, I, I'm not sure exactly what uh, or some of them are trying to go with this. Yes, I think, you know, I can't wait for him to say, we will not live long and prosper, you know, to show how empty <laughs> uh, this appearance. And, of course, they're probably super upset uh, because she might have total control of Space Force as president of Earth. And, you know, can you imagine if she got total control of Space Force, Donald Trump's, uh, you know, signature creation uh, for the military? That would just unnerve them. Um, but, yes, it's not going to sway any votes. And it was funny, uh, uh, you know, bringing the Texas-Georgia uh, connection, I guess, like Herschel Walker as well. We should have, you know, offered him back in a trade uh, to Sonia Van Meter. Um, but – you know, Ted Cruz, he was up in arms about this. And, you know, I, who the governor of Georgia really shouldn't, you know, be that big a concern because when the weather gets bad, he goes to Cancun, not Jekyll Island. Um, there we go. And so and, – and also Ted Cruz jumped in and, uh, and endorsed uh, uh, Herschel Walker this week as well after that attack ad. So I think that tells you how um, some Republicans are viewing that attack ad that it may not have as much um, credence harkening back to that. But I did find it funny that, um, of all things, you know, Ted Cruz was uh, so concerned. He seemed more concerned, honestly, than, than Brian Kemp, um, who might actually need to have some political thought on it since I'll be his opponent um, if, if he were to win um, renomination. Um, well, let's talk about the final topic. Let's end this show with some good news. Um, this past week – a bill came before the um, United States Senate, and it passed 99 to nothing. Every single member of the Senate that voted on it um, voted for it. So we actually can have bipartisanship on something in this country. Now, what that bill was is the Senate um, voted to have daylight savings time 
um, all year long and give everybody an extra hour of sunlight in the afternoon when hopefully they're off of work or out of school or whatever. So we have found the one thing that can unite Americans, and it's extra sunlight. Um, Catherine, your thoughts on the, on the, you know, it still has, I guess, has to pass the House. It would have to get the president's signature. Um, but what your thoughts on what the Senate did and how shocking it was that anything in the political environment can have zero no votes. Yeah, I mean, the fact that it um, it passed 99 to zero is great. I don't care about daylight savings time. I could care less whether we have it or don't have it. Matters to me not at all. I know a lot of people are very um, are very opinionated about it and have a you know dislike for it. It's never bothered me. I and so whatever everybody else wants is fine with me. Um, so I, I don't really I don't really care. But it is encouraging that they could all vote together on. Even though I think there's a lot more important things that they could be voting on, but. Just as as a um, symbol symbolically, I think it's good. Yeah, well, well I'm gonna t- I'm gonna tell you I'm gonna break in before Tim talks on this and tell you that as someone that's in education, that's in athletics for youth, it gives you that extra hour for those kids to have outdoor practices. That's more fitness, exercise time outside, which is good for brain health. Um, outdoors, you know, vitamin C. There's a lot of benefits there. For people that may work, that may give them that extra hour to get home and then walk or work outside in the yard or what have you, and then they're going to see those same health benefits, those same mental health benefits. So I think um, that those are positives for everybody, and those are real benefits of that extra hour. Um, so I, I think that would be the where, hey, everybody from Bernie Sanders to Josh Hawley got on board with something left to right for the good of the people. Um, Tim, your thoughts? Well, leave it to me to throw cold water on it, right? First of all, this (laughs) bipartisan vote was actually a voice vote. Now, under Senate rules, they asked, you know, for, you know, all in favor, and uh, everybody that's in the room, and I think there were 10 or 12 of them in there at the time, said, yay. All of any opposed, well, nobody's opposed. Normally, somebody's standing there at the podium ready to oppose the bill. And there were several senators that mentioned if their staffs had communicated with them, they would have been out there to oppose the bill. Um, so the the House is going to look at it. No, no idea if Biden is for it or not. It'll take effect if it happens in November of 2023 because they're going to wait and let um, the airlines and um, some other groups weigh in on it about how it will affect them. By the way, the states of Hawaii and Arizona have never been on daylight saving time, and under this new law, they will be allowed to stay on standard time. And then there's the question of why not go back to standard time. You're not gaining an hour. 
you're 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 gaining one in the evening and losing one in the morning. <laughs> if that's what everybody wants to do, hey, that's great. I think most people are just sick of going back and forth. That that's the big driving force here, and I've no doubt it would pass. I've also no doubt that if there had been a senator out there to object, that this would not have been a unanimous vote. But under the Senate rules, it's recorded as such. So that's what happened. Yes, I'm interested to find out who the proverbial turds in the punch ball were that would have objected. Um, and, and I'll tell you this. The, the, the hour in the morning, you know, you go to work, you go to school. For most people, um, you know, not as valuable um, is that hour in the afternoon for most people that have those um, schedules, which increasingly are like, you know, eight to four kind of schedules. Everybody says nine to five, but I think a lot of people have more than eight to four, even the seven to three schedules than people realize. Well, um, I want to thank again Sonia Van Veter for coming on the show. Uh, it's been a show where we got to discuss a lot of topics as well. And next week, we're going to move one state up. And J.J. Abrams, who last time joined us from the Beltway in D.C., he is now at the University of Oklahoma, and J.J. is going to talk to us about a little bit of Oklahoma politics and more when he's on the show next week. So until then, then the Cousin Vine. Good night, Good night, everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and